0: Being a mom is the toughest job there is, and it doesn't come with instructions. So it's okay if you don't have all the answers. We'll figure it out together. This is Mom Brain with Ilaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz. Hey guys, welcome back to Mom Brain. I'm Ilaria and I'm Daphne. And today's guest is none other than the number one New York Times bestselling author, Brad Meltzer. If you guys are history buffs like I am, like I've grown up with, you've definitely read one of his many best-selling historical thrillers. He's got a bunch of kids' books that are incredible. I feel like I need the whole library. Or you might have caught one of his history channel shows like Brad Meltzer's Lost History or Brad Meltzer's Decoded. So this is going to be a really incredible
1: interview, guys, with with him just because he is so – he's such a good storyteller. He is so um, passionate about what he does. And I am very inspired by his children's books. So he has an amazing um, line of children's books called Ordinary People Change the World. And I'm really excited to get these books for the kids because I think that they're going to eat them up or read them up.
0: So we are going to get you guys one hell of a history lesson here. We're going to ask him about fostering a love of history and of reading in our kids. And we're going to pepper him with a few more questions about how he gets the secret history that apparently everybody else has forgotten about but we all need to know that
1: the secret service the wants, secret by service the wants, exactly. so oh my gosh secret. there's so much alright guys here's, <laughs> here's our, our conversation <laughs> just listen to it okay guys
2: mom playing. hey I'm best selling author Brad Meltzer the best selling author uh, I write kids books adult books fiction nonfiction, and do a couple TV shows as well uh, and I have three kids ranging from 18 down to uh Oh, how how do I have an eighteen year old? That's impossible. I say the words, they leave my mouth. I can't believe it. But raging eighteen down to eleven.
1: And where can we follow you?
2: You can follow me uh, everywhere at Brad Meltzer. Uh, everywhere from Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you name it. It's at Brad Meltzer, like seltzer that you drink, but with an M, like Mary. That's what my my dad used to say, and I still say it. Isn't that sad?
1: <laughs> um, you know i I studied art. I studied art history, so I'm a big history fan, and I feel like this idea of history repeating itself is something that more and more people need to get into their heads. And that there's so many things where we say, wow, this is 2020 right now. Why are these things still happening? And I think that if more and more people took a look back, you know, even not that far into history, we would hopefully have learned more lessons than we've learned today. So talk to us a little bit about your passion for history. Talk a little to us a little bit about your, your, give us a little, a little quick background. Um, and, and, um, we'll, then we're going to go from there.
2: Yeah, sure. And, and listen, let's start with what you just said. There's a great quote that's attributed to Mark Twain, although he never said it, uh, but it says history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. And that's where it feels like we are today, right? I mean, it just feels like, my gosh, look around at the country right now. And my love of history came, and my love of writing is probably the same story, came from when I was in ninth grade. My ninth grade English teacher, a woman named Sheila Spicer, uh, changed my life with three words. She said to me, you can write. And I was like, well, everyone can write. She said, no, no, you know what you're doing. She tried to to switch me into the honors class. I had some sort of conflict. She said, here's what we're going to do. You're going to sit in the corner for the entire year, ignore everything I do on the blackboard, ignore every homework assignment I give, you're going to do the honors work instead. And what she was really saying was, you're going to thank me later. And sure enough, a decade later, I went back to her classroom when my first book was published. I knocked on the door. She said, can I help you? I said, my name is Brad Meltzer. I wrote this book and it's for you. I handed her the book and she starts crying. And I said, why are you crying? She said, you know, I was going to retire this year because I didn't think I was having an impact anymore. And I said, are you kidding? I said, you know, you have 30 students. We have one teacher. And for me, that's where my love of writing started. My history teacher in 11th grade gave me my love of history in a similar way, just kind of singled me out and and said, you're good at this. And that was where that's my origin story. That's where I came from is thankfully two teachers. You know, I was the first in my family to go to a four year college. So it was a big deal for me to get out. And I just wound up. My parents didn't know enough. We, We as parents today and I have three kids. Um. We all try to tell our kids, you know, oh, you should study this, or you can make money doing this, or you could do that. And we all want to give advice. My parents didn't know anything. So they let me go to college and study whatever the hell I wanted. They didn't even know it was a good job. They were like, oh my gosh, we had a kid in college. So I wound up finding history.
0: If there's like one or two historical events that you think parents could really wow their kids with that wouldn't be meaningful to them, that would get them excited and jazzed, maybe they won't have the teacher that does it for them, but they could have the parent that does it for them, what would that be?
2: Yeah, no, it's a fair question. And, and and I think the mistake is, is we try to look at events and mm. I love good events, right? I love, you know, teaching stories, whether it's about Gettysburg or whether you want to pick the American Revolution or you want to pick the civil rights movement. You know, there are great, wonderful events to teach. But kids, uh, I'll, I'll tell it to you this way, because I only know how to ever tell it to, through is I had that same dream for my daughter and I wanted to give my daughter Amelia Earhart Right? I was tired of my own kids looking at reality TV show stars and people who are famous for being famous and thinking that's a hero. I was like, I, I want to give them better heroes to look up to. How do I teach my kids kindness and perseverance? What from history can I pull to give them lessons of compassion? So I was mm-hmm. like, okay, Amelia Earhart's persistence. So I told my daughter, the event I picked was Amelia Earhart flew across the Atlantic Ocean. You know what my daughter said to me? Big deal, Dad. Everyone flies across the Atlantic Ocean. No. <laughs> she was so not impressed. She was like, that is who cares? And and but then I told my my daughter this story. And this is true. When Amelia Earhart was seven years old, she built a homemade roller coaster in her backyard. She took a wooden crate, she put roller skating wheels on the bottom of it, she shoved it to the roof of her tool shed. And she gets up on the top of the tool shed in the wooden crate with the little roller skid and on the bottom, comes flying down the side, flies through the air, lands, crashes, yells something like, that was amazing. And my daughter was like, dad, tell me that story again. And I realized in that moment that my daughter couldn't relate to the big event. She couldn't relate to slavery or the mm-hmm. civil war. She couldn't relate to the big things. But she loved hearing those stories when that hero was just like them. So we started this entire line of books. We started with, I'm Amelia Earhart. We did, I am Abraham Lincoln. I am Rosa Parks. We did, I am Albert Einstein. My son loves sports. And so I was like, you want a real sports hero? Don't look at a millionaire who makes millions of dollars. I see him behind me. Here, meet Jackie Robinson. We did, I am Jackie Robinson. And then we did, I am Lucille Ball for my daughter because I wanted her to have a female entertainment hero. who Wasn't just famous for being thin and pretty. That Lucy stood for the idea. It's okay to be different. It's spectacular to be different. It's the best part of who we are. And we did I Am Helen Keller. We put real braille into the book. I watched my eight, and these are books for like little kids, obviously, right? But I watched my 18 year old son with his eyes closed, feeling the braille. It says, you know, feel these dots. This is my name. My name's Helen, what's yours? And my son looked at me, I caught him reading And he says, dad, this one's actually good. I'm like, actually, right? <laughs> and, and this, but, but this amazing thing happened to us with the books and all kidding aside is um, when the election in 2016, the presidential election happened, As Hillary and Donald Trump were arguing every day, debating every day on TV and yelling at each other, this amazing thing happened with our books. And it's really taught me more, you'll see to answer your question than anything else is, suddenly two of our books started selling more than any others. And they were, I am Martin Luther King Jr. and I am George Washington. And it wasn't a Democrat or Republican thing. Mm -hmm. It was a parents and grandparents on both sides were tired of turning on the TV and seeing politicians, but they wanted to show their kids were leaders. And we all know there's a huge difference between a politician and a leader. And I love that people have used our books, The Ordinary People Change the World books, to fight back against the cynicism we see in America today, against the divisiveness we see, building libraries of real heroes for their kids and their grandkids, their nieces, their nephews. Um, So to me, what I learned from it is my kids will never absorb just the event, but they want to know the person. And it's why every book on the back, it has that person's motto. On the back of I Am Amelia Earhart, it says, I know no bounds. On the back of I am Abraham Lincoln, it says, I will speak my mind and speak for others. On the back of I am Walt Disney, it says, I know that the person who makes dreams come true is you. And that is what my kids can glom onto, is that idea that every person out there, you know, whoever you look up to, was just like them when they were little. So we always start the books when they're little and then you see them get older. So I think that's the way to always go when you're teaching your kids that.
1: When you're deciding to write these books, how do you choose a particular... I'm going to say character, even though there there can real can real people be characters? We can be characters, we are all, right? Come we're, on, all we're all characters. characters. We're Let, all let's characters.
2: Be <laughs> so listen, I, I I'm very selfish about it. I look for the lessons I want my kids to have. As I told you, I, I mean, I was looking for a hero. I was like, I, my son is just looking at at athletes who are paid millions of dollars and scoring yeah. lots of points, and I was like, that's not a hero. That's using your talent to make money and and win games, but that doesn't mean anything. I gave him Jackie Robinson. My daughter loves our dog. And I was like, how do I teach her that, you know, what you can take, what you love and change the world with it. And I was like, wait a minute, I got it. And I started researching and found Jane Goodall. And mm-hmm. you know, I am Jane Goodall, our number one selling book beside Amelia Earhart right now. Really? Why? Because she loves chimpanzees. She used her love of animals to go and change the way we study animals. And for my youngest, my youngest is like, um, how do I describe? Him? He's like the dreamer, right? He plays Lego, his head's in the clouds. He's like, you know, always building and drawing and creating. But for him, I was like, here, I'm going to do, I am Jim Henson and I am Walt Disney just for you to show you that your daydreaming can actually make something amazing. So that's how we always build them. Now, of course we get, you know, we had a lot of people in the Hispanic community was like, where's our book? So whether it's Frida Kahlo or whether it's Sonia Sotomayor, there's no politics in our books, but we try and find those heroes who are out there. Um, and and we get requests from everyone. When kids come to our book signings, they will bring, kids don't ask. They bring a list of demands or like little terrorists. <laughs> and they're like, here's my list. Oh here's the book you got to do next. Right. But then you have that moment, right? So you have these kids, like and all our kids, I'm sure have those moments, right? And then I have this moment where my son on Halloween says, dad, I'm going to take all my candy and I'm going to give it to the homeless people. And you're like, how do I teach that part yeah. and not the first part, right? Like, how do we do that as parents? And, and the truth is, we all know, you know, you, it, it's really hard. It's hard being a parent. And and for me, one of the things that was very important is, is showing people, you know, we make this real mistake in our country today. What we do with our heroes and the people we look up to is we build these great statues of them and we worship at their feet as if they're perfect. We turn them into these granite images and like they're lowercase g gods, And anyone you look up to, and I tell my kids this all the time, I'm like, anyone you look up to, anyone who you think is great, whether it's Rosa Parks or Albert Einstein or Dr. King or Amelia Earhart, they all have moments where they were scared and they were terrified and they didn't think they could go on, but they choose to go on. And what I love is I just got, you go on our social media, I get them every single day. I got one today that said, um, you know, hey, dear Brad, thanks to your books, uh, you know, my kid said that they want to change the world. And I'm uh-huh. like, oh, oh my God. Like, and you don't think of these things, but it's not me. It's not my writings. Chris Eliapis, our Alpesar, amazing artist, like, is, you know, has this lovable art style. But I think what it is, is I think our kids right now are in this age of anxiety. We're all anxious. As adults, we're anxious. Our kids are anxious. And seeing a real person who is just like them. I mean, there's a reason we draw these characters all in like little size, right? Is... So it's a conscious choice. Like, why do we put Abraham Lincoln with a little beard and a top hat? So the kids, you know, we we actually did when we started the series, we drew Amelia Earhart really big. And then we drew Abraham Lincoln really big when he got older. And the kids' eyes glazed over and they, they were uninterested, like boring. But if I made them little, they got the message, they're just like them. And then kids go, wait, I can do that too. So my kid will never, doesn't care about the 16th president, doesn't care about f- free and slavery, has no context for that but when he sees that Abraham Lincoln was scared when he was little and that he stuck up for his friends when he was little and that he saw a group of boys torturing turtles and he stood up to the boys and you know I don't care if you're 10 years old or you're 50 years old sometimes it's hard to do the right thing but someone has to and my son still sleeps with a little Abraham Lincoln doll because he loved ah. that moment when when he stood up to the to the bullies that were trying to hurt that little animal a little animal turtle and and it, to me that's what you got to give your kids is is the examples you got to show them it's real and I think, and listen, we, we, I wish we were smart enough to say like, we knew this all along and this is how the book's going to work. We we didn't know, right? We were just trying to give our kids better heroes and just being like, yeah, I love my kids no more or less than any of us love our children. We just want the best for them. And I heard this story and I, I wish we could take full credit that we're such geniuses. we we lucked into this one. I have a friend, he's white, his daughter's uh, African-American, mixed race family. And one of the things we do at the end of every book is we always show the real picture of the real hero. So you get to the I am, end of I am Jackie Robinson, Jackie Robinson's picture's there, you get to the end of I am George Washington, George Washington's, you know, we have a picture of him there, Walt Disney, so on and so forth. So he's reading I am Rosa Parks with his daughter, sitting on his lap, reading through the book, and she gets to the end, and it's obviously all cartoon, it's all illustrated, but she gets to the last page, sees that picture of Rosa Parks, and she says to him, wait a minute, this really happened? This really happened? And he said, and suddenly he was having the first ever real conversation with his young daughter about race. And he's like, and he's like, I'm a mixed race family. I should have had this conversation years ago, but I was too scared. We all know race is a really hard subject, especially these days. When you feed your kid that little nugget and they show an interest in it, they're going to keep coming back for more. And now you've created an intellectual curiosity and that is going to feed them forever.
0: Having a hero is a really important thing for a kid. And you clearly have a really healthy understanding of... What bad, what not bad, but not the greatest heroes look like. Well, I'm curious who some of your favorite heroes were as a kid.
2: I grew up loving Batman of all things, right? If mm. you look at me from pictures of me from when I'm like five years old till about 35, I'm wearing a Batman cape in the picture, <laughs> right? I mean, I truly like, but you know why I love Batman? And the reason I tell you this is it was my grandfather. My grandfather was the first person who ever told me stories. And he used to tell me this story. He'd say, Batman and Robin are in the Batmobile. And in front of them is a white van. And in the van is the Joker, the Penguin, the Riddler, and Catwoman. And they ride around the side of the cliff. And the Batmobile catches up, and then they catch him. And I'd say, tell it again. And he'd say, Batman and Robin are in the Batmobile. And this story can't possibly have 30 words in it, right? Catch him, tell it again. But over and over, he told me this story. And that was my first hero growing up. It was that person who... I'm sure it was so boring for him to tell the same stupid story repeated the exact way that I wanted it, but he did that with his time, and it took me. I wish again I could say this, you know, all the time. I mean, my heroes growing up, when I was seven years old, a man named Jim Henson and a man named Mister Rogers told me on TV through the television that I, I could use my creativity to put good into this world. That's what they taught me. You could use your creativity to put good into the world, and that is all I'm trying to do as I sit here today talking to you is trying to use my creativity to put good into this world. In fact, when we launched, PBS just took our kids' books, The Ordinary People Change World books, and they made a TV show, Xavier Riddle and the Secret Museum, based on the kids' books. And so now if you look on PBS Kids, you'll see it's called Xavier Riddle and the Secret Museum. It's about Xavier, his sister Yudina, their best friend, Brad, the most handsome cartoon character oh, yeah, in the world. <laughs> um, and I'm not even joking. They turn me into a cartoon character, but they have a problem. Like they're being bullied. They go back in time in their secret museum. They meet Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks teaches them how to deal with the bully. They so come back clever. to the present day. And it's all based on our books, right? We love doing it. But I love the fact, to answer your question, that we launched 50 years and one day after Sesame Street debuted. No pressure on us. But what I love is... Those were my heroes. My first heroes beside my grandfather were Mr. Rogers and Jim Henson. Um, And now we get to do that for, you know, obviously on a smaller scale, but we get to try and do that for other kids, bringing them real heroes.
0: I wrote down while you were talking that, you know, you can put, you can use your creativity to put good in the world. I think that is such a validating, you know, I, I, and I both have really creative kids who love to like express themselves. There's, you know, they're not wallflowers. They've got a lot going on, a lot to say, but I, I, I'm, I'm always impressed by finding ways to make them feel like that is a really important contribution even now as kids to the world around them because I think it will foster, you know, continuing that behavior as they get older. Um and doing it for themselves. We 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 just got off a podcast talking about making the validation internal as opposed to external since it's such a that external validation is such a feeder of the anxiety that you referenced as part of our culture right now. I really would love to talk with you about, you know, among uh, among you know, incredible author and now TV r- creator as well, number one New York Times bestseller. A lot of your books have um have focused on or or your studies. It seems like has focused on kind of unknown or like under the radar historical events. And so you know, I'm kind of picturing like National Treasure her- hero in my in my mind right now. That's how I picture how do myself too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right, like very Nicolas Cage. You know, um. So how do you? Uh, how do you come up with these ideas? How do you find them? How do you like what? Who? How do you get that like little golden nugget that nobody that either has been lost in the you know in the library of history or or nobody ever knew about in the first place? Like I'm t- I'm thinking in specific. This there's a, a the spiring of George Washington's that persists until today that everyone apparently besides you had forgotten about. What is the
2: deal here? Right. I mean, so yeah, that, that was a good one. That that one I had a little help. So um, I got a phone call a couple years ago from the Department of Homeland Security. And they asked me to come in and brainstorm different ways a terrorist could attack the United States. And my first what? my first thought was, if they're calling me, we have bigger problems than anybody thinks, right? <laughs> like if you think the country is messed up now, like I was like, they're calling, why are they calling like the fiction writer and the, and the history writer? And But I was honored to go do it. They would pair me with a secret service agent and a chemist and would give us a target, like a major city, like New York City. And we would destroy it in an hour. And you go home terrified, right? Because you see how easy it is to kill us. But I said to my friend in Homeland Security, I I was like, why me? Why'd you pick me? And I traced it back through history to see if I can find a precedent for it. It traced back to a man named George Washington, that George Washington during the Revolutionary War had his own secret spy ring made up of regular ordinary people. And you want to know why? Because he knew no one looks twice at an ordinary person. The British knew who his big generals were and they knew all the the, commanders and leaders were, but no one looks twice at an ordinary person. So I said to my friend in Homeland Security, wouldn't it be cool if you found out that George Washington's spying still existed to this very day? And he said to me, what makes you think it doesn't? And I was like, that's a good idea for a book. And that's how I found it. So, And then, you you know, sometimes like, I, you know, I found one that I was just reading through another George Washington one is I was just reading through the footnotes one day and I saw a footnote that said uh, there was a secret plot to kill George Washington, I'm like, what? And it's just that no one reads the footnotes because whatever. I'm, I was going to say, who reads the no footnotes? No one reads the footnotes, but that, the answer is <laughs> I do. I'm the nerd that reads the footnotes. I just love, <laughs> and I'm reading through it and I'm like, this is, is this fake? Is this real? Like, what is this? And it was true. In 1776, there was a secret plot to kill George Washington. When George Washington found out about it, he built a gallows. He he gathered up those responsible. He um, took the main co-conspirator and he hanged him in front of 20 thousand people, the largest public execution at that point in North American history. George Washington brought the hammer down, was like, do not mess with me. I'm George Washington. I'm going to be on the money one day. Um, but I love the story. And I was like, I got to write a a book about that. So we did, you know, for that one, I wrote a nonfiction book because it was a true story for the escape artist. I found a story that I was like, this is amazing that I found things that secretly happened on this government facility. I'm like, I got to write about that. And Harry Houdini, the escape artist is going to be born. For your, for your little ones, again, I have that little creative one. I was searching for stories to just inspire my kids. And I found this story about Walt Disney. And it said that Walt, and you tell your kid this tonight, that Walt Disney um, one day uh, used to, used to, on the side of his house was painting. And his sister's like, are you sure we should paint on the side of that? I was like, yeah, it's gonna come off. But he didn't realize he was painting with tar. <gasps> it did not come off. It stayed there forever, including when they sold the house. And here's the part my son loved is when Walt Disney uh, was so broke and did so poorly with his first business, went bankrupt. He had to sleep in a train, in a bus station. He would take showers there. I mean, terrible, a total, utter failure. But the most important thing is he doesn't give up. And when he comes up with this idea for this magical new mouse, he says, yeah, I got the idea for a new mouse. We're going to call him Mortimer Mouse. And his wife is like, Mortimer Mouse, that's a terrible name. That's what she said. She says, it's a horrible name. But that's how the world gets Mickey Mouse. Not because, you know, America is the greatest country on earth or it's, or it's all easy, but it's a total error and then another bad one. And then he fails and then he makes Mickey. And to me, you know, when you teach your kids that, that you fall, but you get back up again, you don't teach your kids, you know, what you teach your kids in that moment is to teach them how to fly. And those are the stories that I just kind of gravitate to. So I always find that story. I'll dig around through whatever nerdy thing I want to. And then I'll just decide it's a kid's book, adult book, fiction, nonfiction, and, and, you know, try and find a place for it.
1: You're teaching kids to believe in themselves and to take risks, um, which is some some of the hardest things to, to do because we're so, um, you know, we're so focused on results and on everybody looking at us and thinking that we're doing great. And when we stumble and we fall, you know, we can either get up again, as you say, or we can get really, really, really... Um, nervous and and never get up again and just try to follow in line with everybody else and try to be very uh, ordinary.
2: Yeah. I, you know, I, one of the first stories that ever, on the day that my son was born, I started writing a book for him and it was going to be this book that was filled with like great advice for him to live by and, you know, tell him how to, how to be a nice person. I was, you know, and the book was horrible. It was a horrible book because all it did was just, you know, it's like telling your kid to be good and expecting them to be good. And then a friend of mine Uh, Simon Sinek told me this amazing story about the Wright brothers. He said, every time the Wright brothers went out to fly their plane, they would bring enough extra materials for multiple crashes, which means every time they went out, they knew they would fail. And they would crash and rebuild and crash and rebuild. And that's why they took off. And I love that story, right? I wanted my sons to hear that story. I wanted my daughter to hear that story. I wanted everyone to know you dream big, you work hard, you have a good side order of stubbornness. You can do anything in this world. And so I wrote this book, Heroes for My Son, and one called Heroes for My Daughter. First hero in there is the Wright Brothers. But here's why I tell you the story, is I get letters from people who tell me that their kids, that one, I'll never forget, was like my son was riding their bike, crashed the bike, fell over the first time. And I was like, oh my gosh, went running to save the kid. And the kid got up and said, looked at him and said, dad, just like the book, crash and rebuild, crash and rebuild. And I realized when I got that letter, we always focus on our kids to tell them, the victory story. We tell them the end point story. Here's how it all happened. But the far more important story is to teach them about all the failures. Mm-hmm. So every book, when we did I Am Abraham Lincoln, you see Abraham Lincoln lose eight elections and still keep coming. When you see George Washington, you see him lose his first election and keep coming. You see Amelia Earhart crash that homemade roller coaster. Um, one of my favorite ones is Neil Armstrong, right? We did I Am Neil Armstrong, one of the most popular books we have now, especially the girls who write me saying they want to be astronauts. But what I love about it is when Neil Armstrong was a little kid, he used to love climbing trees. And one day he's climbing a tree in his backyard. I think he's 11 years old and he grabs a dead branch and the branch snaps and he falls all the way down, lands on his back wind knocked out of him. But the most important thing that Neil Armstrong does in that moment gets back up again, right? Becomes, starts making toy model airplanes, becomes a pilot gets his pilot's license before he even gets his driver's license because he loves flying so much, becomes a test pilot, becomes an astronaut. But it doesn't take those, you know, one leap for all mankind. That's not what makes him great. The reason he gets to take that one leap is because of the thousands upon thousands of little steps and hard work he takes before. And that's the lesson for my kids, right? That's the one we got to teach us. Stop teaching the end point. And teach that the failure is okay as long as you keep moving past it, you'll get a far better result.
0: I love that you really do seem to write specifically for your children and and what you see them tackling individually. Were there different lessons in what the, you know lessons for your son versus lessons for your daughter?
2: Oh, you're smart. So here's what I did. So I wrote Heroes for my son, and um, then I wrote Heroes for my daughter's second book. because my oldest is is a boy, and and my daughter came is our second child. And my editor wrote to me and said, I have a problem with this book. And I said, what's the problem? And she said, you keep using one word over and over and over again. And I said, what's the word? And she said, you keep using the word fight. that you have to fight for what you need. You have to fight for what's right. You have to fight for all Mm -hmm. this stuff in your daughter book, but you never used it in the son book. And I had to take that step back and realize that what I did subconsciously, obviously not on purpose, but my son book, the one for my boys, was all about inspiring them. And for my daughter, it was all about protecting her. And that was my bad wow. bias. It was terrible. Wow. I didn't even realize I was doing it. But I really, when my daughter was little, she used to um, do this thing that we always used to make a family joke about. Is She used to jump into the deep end of the pool and then she'd pop up and she'd say, I'm okay. And jump in, jump up and go, I'm okay. And I realized, oh, that's so cute of her to do that. And, we, and I, In that moment, realized she's doing that because I keep saying, are you okay? She's reading it off me. And I realized now I was like, I had I had the word fight in the Dalai Lama's entry. It's a pacifist, <laughs> right? I mean, I was like using everything everywhere. I was like, this is a terrible and I had to rewrite, but the Heroes for My Daughter book is the better book because it had that bias like made aware to me before I, I could mm. I could publish it and get it out there. So that that's what I do with my daughter as opposed to my son.
1: I wonder if some of that has to do with just not being other gender you know, or or the other sex, I think if we're supposed to say now, the other sex, is that, um, you know, like I, my sons tell me that all the time. Mommy, I'm okay. Mommy, I'm okay. Because mm. I think sometimes we have a comfort level with our own sex. So with my daughter, I like, I know, she's got it. She's strong. She's got it. Whereas my boys, I'm always like afraid of something because it's just, there's something almost foreign or, or just different or the, you know, I, I don't know. I, I always think about no,
2: that. No, it's a good, I mean, and for me, that's so interesting is my daughter she's a little bag of nails. Like she could, she could take on anything, right? Mm-hmm. That's the amazing part. It wasn't, it wasn't, it, it was clearly something within me and not even reacting to her because she was so young. I didn't know what she was going to be or how she was going to come out. Um, but I, you got to be aware of your biases. And, and I feel like, you know, when I do the books, I it's amazing to me what my kids pull. I mean, they pull things yeah. that are important to them that are never was the thing that I thought was important. And mm-hmm. I will always test. I mean, I think my wife jokes that I had kids so I could focus group. Like I always test the books (laughs) out on them (laughs) to see what they react to, right? I get these free focus groups. But like I, for me, it's so vital to watch and see that they're going to react to something entirely differently than I did. And you know what? That's perfect. That's absolutely fine. Like we did Sacagawea. My daughter's, one of her favorite parts is where Sacagawea, you know, I thought was going to be the story where she saves the day and saves the Lewis and Clark expedition and and is the only one who doesn't panic. And it shows her how to blaze her own trail. But what my daughter reacted to was um, that when Sakajue could have gone back to her family and could have been freed from the slavery she was in, she says, I wanna still go see the Pacific Ocean. I've never seen it before. She wants to see that vista for the first time. Mm-hmm. And there's this beautiful picture in the book where you see the her standing on the edge of the ocean. And I remember her reacting to that and just that idea of like, go and blaze your own trail. That, I was like, oh, that's better than what I had planned for you. So, you know, to me, we all have these great plans for our kids and then, right, we plan and God laughs and that's the way it goes, but, or at least our kids laugh.
1: Other than Jane Goodall, do you have other uh, contemporaries or are most of them not with us anymore?
2: No, you know, most people are dead. Um... So we did Jane Goodall because I just love Jane Goodall. We also did Billie Jean King. I really wanted to do mm. a gay and lesbian hero. It was mm-hmm. very important to me for family reasons, for lots of reasons. And also I wanted a female athlete to say like, you know, my son used to, and truthfully my son used to always be like, boys are better at sports and girls. And I'd sit there at the dinner table. I'm like, you know, most parents, I like, get into a fight and argue and make a speech. Like, I was like, I'm going to go write a book. You wait right here because I'm going to be back in a couple of <laughs> weeks. And I'm going to, you're going know, to these words. And I love the fact that when we, when we did those books, like, if I mess up George Washington, what's he going to do? But I mess up Billie Jean King. She's coming to my house with a tennis racket, right? Like, do <laughs> yeah. not mess this yeah. up. So we gave her the book. We And she was really sweet. She loved the series. And, and we gave her the book. And I spent two hours on the phone with her where her correcting like, oh, by the way, Brad, in this scene, my sneakers were blue. They weren't white. And I, that's when I switched to these kinds of Adidas. And, and we got to this one part of the book, I'll never forget. And she said to me, you know, and this scene wasn't here, it was actually here. And I said, "You know, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I said, but I actually got that detail. Are you sure that's right? Because I got that detail from your autobiography. And she said, yeah, 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 I know. But I was so busy back then, I never got to proof of my autobiography. And I love that our kid's book, I am Billy Jean King, is has is now more, <laughs> more validated. Than her own autobiography, which is just spectacular to me. So but That's usually awesome. we do have dead people.
0: That's amazing. We um we started off the chat talking about how uh you know Mark Twain's falsely attributed quote about how history rhymes, but that doesn't repeat. And I'm I'm so curious, you know, with all your wealth of knowledge of of history, if there's something that if there's a time that feels like it rings true to now where we can we can pull lessons, if there's something, you know, around your family dinner table that you guys are talking about, uh, you know, a way to give historical context to what people are going through right now.
2: Yeah, you know, and, and oddly it came from, the, from an adult book that I was working on, but I use it for my kids all the time. I found this story, and we started writing it two years ago, so we have no idea where the country's going to be, right? We just pick the stories that we think are interesting. And I found this story, uh, we all know the story about Abraham Lincoln being shot at Ford's Theater. Mm -hmm. But there was actually a story that I found um, about the original secret plot to kill him at the start of his presidency. And Abraham Lincoln to be sworn in as the 16th president had to take a train uh, from his home in Springfield, Illinois to Washington, DC. And the only way to get there is he had to go through Baltimore. But Maryland at the time was a slave state. So there was a secret plot to actually kill him when he came through Baltimore. That was the plot is he's gonna come through Baltimore and we're gonna kill him. He's never gonna become president and the plot, it fails. But what was interesting to me is we, again, tell the story of Abraham Lincoln at the end of his presidency, right? The the greatest president arguably who ever lived wins the civil war, emancipation proclamation, frees you know, and ends slavery. They're like, this is incredible. Um, But what struck me was at the start of his presidency, Abraham Lincoln is despised. They hate him. They hate him so much that when he's running for the presidency, that 10 different Southern states won't even put his name on the ballot because they hate him so much. They hate him so much that three days, they give him three days into his presidency, South Carolina says that they're gonna pass a resolution to secede from the union. Three days is how long they wanna put up with him. He and, and Abraham Lincoln is hated, not on the ballot. They seceding from the union is all getting ready to go. They're trying to murder him. A secret society is trying to murder him on his way to be sworn in. And Abraham Lincoln in that moment comes to, and obviously, I won't it doesn't spoil the book to say he obviously Mm. escapes and lives, but he gets sworn in, raises his right hand at the Capitol, and you know what he says in his first inaugural address? At a time when they hate him and he knows half the country hates him, and he knows we're bitterly divided, and you know, and whatever side you're on, you think the other side of the country is are horrible, awful people. Does that sound familiar to you? Mm. Right? Like that. He says in that moment, he gets in front of everyone and he says to everyone on his first inaugural address, we should not be enemies, we should be friends, that we need to defer to the better angels of our nature. And that's the lesson I use with my kids and I use with my wife and I use myself is we have to today be better than what angers us. Be better than what angers you, be better than what angers you, and we need that because Right now, it's so easy to kind of like point a finger and hate whatever whatever side you're not on, um, and that does us no good. So I use Abraham Lincoln, I mean, literally last night at the dinner table telling that story, and I wrote that for adults, but I'm like, my kids need it, I need it, we all need it.
0: I love that. Oh my goodness. It's hard to do, but it's, it's so hard, true. It's so hard to do. It's,
2: so, it's true. so hard to like. I always tell people: if you're watching, let's pretend you, you know, you're a Democrat, and you just watch CNN, or you're a Republican, you just watch Fox News. If you are just watching one news source, you are a non-informed citizen. You just are not. You can't be. And and I encourage people: go on Twitter or Facebook, Instagram, whatever you do, and follow some people who aren't like you. It will make you crazy. You will want to murder these people within one day. I promise you, and I do too. Right? We all do. But, but if you just are surrounded by people who are just telling you exactly how you think, then you're just in an echo chamber. You're doing yourself no good. And and listen, and it
1: gives you perspective,
2: right? And you may not agree, and you're certainly going to disagree, and you'll. But you'll just know that the world is not just you. And again, mm-hmm. it's not that I think the other side has you know, to do, you know, to both sides this and say like, well, they have good points and you're going to be a better person. But if if you just listen to your way, you, you know, you, you're never going to see the full dimension. And that's, that's the problem is I think what social media has done is it makes us follow those who are good at calling attention to themselves. That's what mm-hmm. social media is, right? It's those who write in all caps and triple exclamation points, look at me, that's who we follow because they're good at it. But I'm tired of that nonsense. I'm tired of following those who are the loudest, what I'd rather have. And I think it's no coincidence. Like last year, what were the two big biographies that were released in the films? Uh, Mr. Rogers and Neil Armstrong. Why? Humble people, right? Who don't need to say, look at me, 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 me. Right? Remember when humility was a great American value? We lost it. <laughs> Feels like it. a long time ago. We lost That's it, right? It's right gone. <laughs> it, that, those days are dead. Like we need to bring them back again. And if we don't do that ourselves and realize there has to be something bigger than just my own view, We can't get there. And and we all know the only way to change the world, you got to change yourself. That's
1: it. I mean, but it, it gets hard because it's just so loud right now. So even those with good message, in order to get heard, they just have to scream louder. Yeah, I course. my We used to go to um, talks at, at the Harvard Club and, and just almost like students be able just to, to listen to different professors that were coming. And and one of the professors, he said exactly that. He says, well, what kind of news do you like to listen? I'm like, well, you know, news that makes sense. And he listed a few of them. I was like, yes, yes, that news, that is news, that's real news. And he's like, if you're smart, you listen to the other stuff too. So, and not yeah. just to realize that people are different, but to also hear other perspective that's maybe gonna sway you or be really sure that your perspective is the is the perspective that you want right. to stick with. Hundred percent right. And I had never it I mean this was a few years ago when that when that particular thing happened and it was so just something so simple was so mind blowing to me. And now I make sure that I read all news you have and to. sometimes it makes me it makes me crazy, crazy, but at the same time it also gives me compassion for people who that is their only news and this is what they're believing and they're thinking. And then you think of people as less evil and more as a, a, a maybe not informed for at least what I believe.
2: You know, it's funny when I when I take these books, when I take the ordinary people change the world books, um, I just did. We just did the new one, even the Abraham Lincoln book. I you know I was just on. Fox News and CNN. I was on Glenn Beck and I was on NPR, right? It's the one thing that we all can agree on. There are, despite what we watch on the news every day, there are some things we still agree on, whether it's Abraham Lincoln's greatness or whether it's, you know, I am Walt Disney. I mean, I took these books to all these different places. But the one thing, um, even when I would be in green rooms or now when they whisper in my ear before I go on, that everyone at Fox News and CNN and NPR and that everyone all agrees on is this, which is, the way we talk to each other as a culture right now is horrible, it's disgusting. Mm-hmm. It's disgusting the way we talk about people who are on the opposite side. Now, listen, there are some people that should be talked about that way, right? There are some people that are out there doing horrible, awful, racist things. Like, that's a different level, but the way we talk to anyone who is on the other side is disgraceful. And to me, we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. That must be changed, that we have to be able to figure out how to disagree with someone without turning it into a villain, because then all we do is we turn the word into black and white. It's good or it's bad. It's good or it's bad. And we all know, you know, if you're going to the Harbor Club, my wife went there too. Like, you know that the best arguments are not always black and white, always, right? Like some, there's nuances in there. There's things that we've lost the ability to be able to discuss them. It's John Stewart just did this great interview that was talking about that. And I was like, that's right.
0: I think it's interesting because we, for ourselves, know that we are dynamic, layered people with Lots of different, uh, you know, pieces that make us whole. But when we look at other people, they're 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 like a wash. You know, they're they're a universal. They're all you know, they're it's all one. It's all the other. And I think that that's really toxic. And we and it absolutely the conversation piece I think is important because, like my you know, I my my grandparents' generation, they would go to dinner parties and have hugely contentious, like rager conversations. And then, like, hug everybody and go home. Like, it wasn't like you, you know, it wasn't like right. conversation was so affronting and assaulting to your core sense of being that, like, you couldn't be around people who didn't agree with everything you said. And I think that that's that's part of it too. Is like, if you have really strong beliefs and you and you have lots of data and lots of information for why you hold those things, then it shouldn't it shouldn't bother you to have a conversation about it because you have all the facts. Like, it should be more interesting to you to have a conversation with someone who also has all their. You know, they're right truths, as opposed to that, right? I mean, it's like,
2: it, I always joke that it, it's like, how come everyone who drives faster than you is a maniac and everyone who drives slower than you is branded, <laughs> right? Like, we can't possibly, right? We love our, our complexities, as you so beautifully said, but we can't accept them in anyone else. And, and but you know what? I do believe, um, I believe in that fact that what I was talking about is that I love the fact. when i go to our events i know there are diehard republicans there i know that there are diehard democrats there i love the fact that there are some things we can agree on and i love Mm -hmm, the fact it's like to me it's abraham lincoln right it's like we should be friends not enemies Mm -hmm. um and and listen we we happen to have uh you know someone and there's just a lot of divisiveness right now we for such obvious reasons but until that changes We're going to keep battling each other, but we got to do better, be better than what angers you.
0: I saw that as part of the research for one of your books, you got to actually research with Clinton and Bush, two presidents helping you on this project. What was that
2: like? Yeah. So, you know, the funny thing is, is, um, both president Clinton and former president Bush, uh, HW Bush senior, uh, Mm. read my thrillers and they would write me letters from the white house. They had me over to like the white house. I mean, it was crazy to come in and and actually eat in the president's private dining room. It was silliness. Trust (laughs) me. We were like, they they said to me that I'm like, I saw my name and it says the White House on it, Mr. Meltzer. And I was like, I'm totally stealing my little card. And the first lady was like, Brad, you know all the novices that try to steal their cards. And I'm like, I know all those novices. I'm like, look, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I totally (laughs) swiped my card. Um, But I will tell you, this is one story that I should tell you is I couldn't tell this story when he was alive because, and you'll see why, but when President Bush recently passed away, Um, you know, President Clinton and President Bush have both very kindly given me blurbs on our book, The uh, First Conspiracy About the Plot to Kill George Washington. And right before President Bush died, what no one knew, and I couldn't say at the time, was they were inviting his favorite authors to come read to him. And I got the call. So I go to, I'm in Kennebunkport, and we go to the Bush compound. And the Secret Service says to me, listen, I'm just going to tell you, um, He's, you're only going to read for like five minutes. He's sleeping a lot. He's going to fall asleep on you because he's sleeping a lot these days. And I was like, that's fine. I'm just honored to be here. And we go into the room and the Secret Service leave. And it's me and my wife. It's President Bush and his service dog, Sully. That's it. And we know this is it. We know this is the end. We can see. And on his desk is a stack of books, like half a dozen books. And one of them is, is a copy of the first conspiracy and I had given the early copy. That's why he blurbed it. And, and it was dog here. Like I've been read so many times. And I said, sir, I brought a copy. I said, you want to read this book? And he says, mm-hmm, because he couldn't speak at that point. It was mm-hmm or uh-uh. And I'm reading to him like five minutes in. You know, I wanted to read the scene where President uh, George Washington, before he's was president, that uh, George Washington has the Declaration of Independence read to the troops for the very first time. And I thought that would be a good chapter to read. And sure enough, five minutes in, President Bush falls asleep. And I just, I'm like, I'm going to finish the chapter and we'll get out of here. And I get to those words, those words we all know. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And President Bush's eyes pop open and he locks on me wide awake. And, I'm, and I get to the end of the chapter. I'm like, sir, you want to read another chapter? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Get to the end of that one. You want to read another? Mm-hmm. And we keep going. And instead of being there for five or 10 minutes, I'm there for an hour And I say goodbye to him. Uh, I know I'm never going to see him again. And we went to his funeral. We were invited to his funeral. And the one thing that struck me is there was one word that kept being mentioned over and over in every tribute for him, which was this word, decency, decency. And yes, it was because he was a decent guy. But I think it's as a culture, again, whatever politics, whatever side you're on, we're a culture starving for decency and we need to give that to ourselves and we need to give it to our kids because if they don't learn it we're, we we got a lot more problems. Ah,
0: oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. I'm so glad we got to hear that and sure. so glad that you got to be there with him too because that just sounds like a really really magical memorable moment. Your your memory box is so full. It's <laughs> Trust insane. Trust me. <laughs> uh, um, so we, uh, what's your favorite thing? I mean, I feel like that should be your like your favorite moment. Yes, yeah, so my we...
2: favorite thing. What's my favorite thing? I could pick anything. Anything. My favorite thing that you can buy? um, is ice cream. Yes, I, I spent four years scooping ice cream in the Aventura mall in Florida. <laughs> and if you were a jerk to me, I would go, thank you very much. And I'd take my pinky and break off the bottom of your cone and hand it to you. And then <laughs> you were like a um, hundred yards away and it would be leaking down uh, your shirt because I was so mad. Was snapped I'll never forget the woman who said to me, Brad, you know, she knew my name. She said, she said, uh, you better serve me right now. And I said, "Ma'am, I'm not serving you. You're just being rude." And she screamed at me, "You're going to be working at this miserable ice cream store for the rest of your miserable life." And I said, "Ma'am, if I'm working here the rest of my life, you're still never getting any ice cream." <laughs> um, and so I love ice cream. It's always had the. Death What's of your favorite about. brand flavor now? Um, so I'm. I like Ben and Jerry's. I like Haagen Dazs, which is where I used to work. There's this one called, um there's this is one called Jenny's. I don't know if you've had experience with yes, Jenny's
0: my favorite is my the favorite. praline. The but freaking it's praline crazy. Is out of control. It's crazy. It,
2: it is madness crazy. It's like so expensive here, but um we I love Jenny's. It's in Washington DC originally and now it's all over the country, so we love them.
0: Amazing. Thank you so Thank much. You, this Thomas, was incredible. So fantastic <laughs> Thanks really so much. Really I appreciate it. Appreciate Thank Appreciate you your time. This is a such a fun conversation with Brad. He's is, he is so inspiring. I just I think about the treasure trove of his history. But like that for me is the whole goal of life, right? Like when I'm on my deathbed, God willing, like 125 years old, I want to have this memory box that is just jam packed full of incredible life experiences, and and really hopefully having done a lot of good with my life. And I I I look at you know what he has a, has aspired and has created and just like, you know, this the story he shared about sitting with President Bush. Like this is this is a man who has really harnessed his own skills and done what he loved and found a way to make that a incredibly valuable exploit for everyone around him. And that is It's just so inspiring. I loved hearing from him.
1: Yes, I agree with you. I so agree with you. I want to be 125, too, with an amazing treasure. I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if he was around to read to us on our deathbed? Then it would be, like, really great. Well, I'm really excited, too, right now because we just finished homeschool. And so now I actually might have some time to read something other than, like, you know, first grade curriculum. Every single day Emails
0: about first grade Emails about
1: trying to Print things at You know Midnight Uh, Anyway We hope you guys Really enjoyed this interview It was definitely A very fun one for us And now it's time For our favorite things All right, my favorite thing today is a makeup uh, company that Carmen is absolutely obsessed with. It's called Petite and Pretty, um, and it's a makeup for kids. And, you know, I mean, I I was kind of torn whether to, to let her play around with makeup or not. I think as most people who have children, we're like, oh, well, you can't wear makeup till such and such an age. And we don't want that to make you feel, you know, that you need to wear something. And what I've realized is it's much more about them just you know, having fun painting themselves and expressing themselves. And, you know, so sometimes she wants to play dress up and she likes to put on, you know, lip stuff. And anyway, it's cruelty free. It's made in the USA. It's nut free. It's like a bunch of wonderful things. And it's super, super cute and fabulous and very sparkly and exactly what like little girls want. And I really like them. And I also just think that they're a really like kind brand. So anyway.
0: So my favorite thing this week is – um this is okay so I Phil, Philomena Ilaria is a great runner when she's not super pregnant she yeah, right like now I'm has just not, not running now. very far she has talked at length about how her like breathing technique and all these things she does to enjoy her running and it reminds me of my husband John who is also like a meditator while he runs like it really puts his brain in a calm place and he just relaxes into it and he really enjoys it I am the person that needs to, like, have the most aggro, insane, intense beat music just, like, to push me to keep going step after step because I just do not enjoy running. I listened to a podcast this week that I – feel compelled to share with all of you because I literally like a total goofball was like running down the street, grinning ear to ear. It made me so happy. I like whooped at the end of it because there's this triumphant moment. It was such a breath of like, wow, this is just a weird, cool story that is really well told and really like it doesn't keep you on your toes like a suspenseful thriller, but it, it keeps you interested. And it let me run four and a half miles without like wanting to, you know, just put an end to all of it. So um, it is it was called, uh, it's number 158, The Case of the Missing Hit from Reply All, which is a super popular podcast. I'm sure a lot of you have, have subscribed, but it's it just for me was like it was the first podcast from this series I listened to And I really loved it So I thought I would share it with you guys
1: I love that A podcast that you can run to I know Don't forget to follow us everywhere We're, we're Mom Brain, Absolutely everywhere um, <laughs> I know We like to just tell you That we're infiltrating your life all the time Please leave us a five star review Tell your friends uh, Subscribe Email us MomBrainPod At gmail.com We'd love to hear from you And we will talk to you guys next week. Bye, guys. Bye.
0: This is MomBrain with Alaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz. MomBrain is a Gallery Media Group original production.